Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. You've trained your bird dog all year long. You spent out countless hours on the clays range fine-tuning your wing shooting, and you've worked on Habitat project as a, projects as a member of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. You studied bird counts, and it's finally all come together. Your dog is birdie, a covey of quail flush, a rooster flushes, cackles that badass cackle at you, and you, your shot hits home. You got a bird in hand. On today's episode of On the Wing Podcast, we're going to help you get that bird from your game vest to the plate with a discussion focused on how best to handle that bird's meat from the moment it leaves your bird dog's mouth to the moment it enters your mouth. Joining me for this episode, uh, representing one of our great national partners of partner conservation, Walton's everything but the meat, Jonathan Tremblay. Um, Jonathan, hey, you're, you're a podcast host of your own, so thank you very much for, for making time out of your super busy schedule to join On The Wing Podcast. Well, thanks for having us. Um, one of the things about hosting our podcast, at least, is it's me and Austin, and we have such an easy back and forth. We were talking a few minutes before this. I don't think you and I are going to have any problems <laughs> having a conversation. Uh, we both seem to be gifted with uh, the gift of gab. So <laughs> the problem, we'll probably be trying to cut this short. Uh, so real quick, just a, a quick about me, who I am. Uh, my name is Jonathan Trembley. Uh, I'm originally from upstate New York. Uh, moved down to Kansas about eight years ago, and I have lived all over the country, uh, literally almost everywhere. But uh, once we moved to Kansas, I really, I always say I found my people. Huh. I love Wichita and Kansas in general so much. The only thing I hate is the highest hill here is the <laughs> overpass for the highway it is people always talk about how flat nebraska is mm -hmm. kansas is flatter mm -hmm. i will argue that all day long and when i grew up in new york i was upstate new york so we had the adirondack mountains mm -hmm. i could get in my car and 30 minutes later i'm lost in incredible scenery incredible areas to go hiking mm -hmm. hunting everything you could want to do down here, I go 30 minutes in any direction. I'm in farmland and there's nothing at all to look at. So I always say, I love the people of Kansas. I hate the scenery. <laughs> what about the Flint Hills? Oh, they're, they're nothing. Not... They're nothing. <laughs> That's what everybody from Kansas says. Oh, no, we have the Flint Hills. The Flint Hills wouldn't even register in the top 100 prettiest areas of New York. And I know that sounds crazy. Um, mm. People have this idea of new york mm. but the city is such a small portion of that mm. state as soon as you get out of that you've got the berkshires you've got the adirondacks you have the great lakes there's so much great the finger lakes i mean you have so much great areas for all sorts of hunting outdoor activities that it's almost a, a shame that the rest of us get lumped in with that uh city thought. When I first moved down to uh, Texas, it was in 2002, because it was right after 9-11. Uh, mm. I told them I was from New York. Every single person I asked or uh, worked with asked me, could you see the smoke? Mm. I'm like, I'm three hours away. New York is not just the city. There is this huge expanse of the state. But for whatever reason, people always just think of the city. A Yankees fan or Mets fan? Haha, <laughs> Red Sox fan. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. You, you're throwing me curveballs. What the hell? Glutton for punishment. That's all <laughs> that's all it is. No. Not um, recently. No, no. Uh so I was living in Texas in 2004 when they won. My brother and I bought tickets to fly up thinking we'd catch game 6 or 7. Mm. They ended up sweeping them, so we mm. were there for uh the parade, which I always say it was like an entire city going through some 
unbelievable emotional release. Yeah. It was unbelievable. Um, and all my Yankees fans told me, or Yankee fan friends told me, they're like, you're not going to care as much after this. Well, I doubled down. I cared more. And then three years later, they won again. And I was like, oh, I don't care anymore. How How is that possible? And it's just like fallen by the wayside. Yeah. I'm no longer. But in New York, uh, yeah, it was a daily comment fight back and forth between mm. friends and random people about Red Sox and Yankees. So Wichita, Kansas, did you... Go, did you move there because of the job with Waltons? So no. Um, how that actually happened is my wife is a chemical engineer. Hmm. Uh, we were living in Rochester, New York. I was working for Kodak. She was working for a, a smaller company. Um, and neither one of us were happy. Uh, we didn't like our jobs. We didn't like the area. Um, though that is where she's from. Uh, so she was working with a headhunter. She came home one day. She's like, hey, what do you think about Wichita? My response was, I've never thought about Wichita for a second of my life. Mm -hmm. uh, but she came down here, checked it out. She's like, uh, I don't know. I think we might like it. We'll probably only be there two years, you know, and then we'll move on to something else. So she came down, started working. I started looking for a job. Um, I always tell this story. I left my interview here and I called my wife and I'm like, I don't care what they offer me as far as pay. Like, I'm taking it. Like huh. that is where I want to be. Uh, so I worked here for about three years, uh, two and a half years in customer service. Um, and then Austin, who is my boss, decided that we needed to start teaching people how to make the best product they could. So we're selling them the seasoning, we're selling them the equipment, but we're still getting a lot of calls and, hey, I'm not happy with how it came out. So he had started making a, a couple of videos, you know, like basic how to's, and he started this website called Meatgistics. So it's the word meat and then gistics from like logistics. So it's those two things together. Um, so we started doing a lot more like how to make XYZ. And if you go to meatgistics.com, you could find everything from how to make snack sticks to andouille to literally anything you can think of. We've got some sort of video or article on it. Um, when he offered me this job, I really thought like, that sounds like the most fun I could possibly imagine getting paid for, but right. I don't ever think it's going to be like a full-time thing. Uh, about a year and a half into that, Meatistics continued to grow, a uh, huge customer base. Uh, they sign up, they keep in touch with each other. They post their recipes, comment on things we do. Uh, but he also then told me once it was like, okay, this is a full-time gig for sure. He told me, he's like, one day you're not going to be able to respond to everything that comes through that, you know, the message board mm. again, I'm like you're crazy. I'll always be able to take care of that. Two years on down the road, we've now got five people in my department. I'm the media manager. And it's like, wow. I have <clears throat> way too much things coming in to possibly deal with. So the, the long and short of that is Austin is much smarter than I am. <laughs> and COVID is only uh, like magnified that demand, right? Oh, yes. COVID. Uh, we were one of those kind of, I hesitate to call us a niche market, but one of those markets that COVID just turbocharged our business. So hmm. what, what we think, and we've spent a lot of time, uh, our podcast is called the Meatistics Podcast. And especially when it started kicking off, we spent a lot of time trying to analyze why that was happening. And what we think happened is the first time um, suburban mom went to the grocery store and wasn't able to get the exact cut she wanted, they started looking for more local options. And what they found were their local meat processor. You know, mm -hmm. almost all of them have some sort of uh, cold display right in front of the counter. They went there. And then when the meat became available again at the grocery store, they liked the service and the product so much better from their local meat processor. And that is our number one customer. Mm. The small to medium sized processor. We do some business with the really big guys in the industry, but not a ton. Mm. We don't want to be tied to them. Um, you know, if what happens if you've developed an entire line for Tyson or Cargill, something mm -hmm. like that, and something changes on their end, well, then you're left holding the bag. Instead, we go to these small to medium mom and pop family owned businesses. And that is where we do 90% of our commercial business. 
So you're selling to them to use in their meat markets, but you're also selling on a consumer level to mom and dad who are using that different cut of meat to make it taste better too. Absolutely. Uh, so when I started working here, uh, the retail portion, I think was about five to 10%. We've grown that to about hmm. 30%. Um, and it would be a lot larger percent if the commercial side of it hadn't exploded as well. Hmm. So everything's growing. We are growing. We were growing at a faster rate than the commercial side. We're no longer are. Uh, there is a rivalry between brothers uh my boss handles all the retail side one of the other brothers does all the commercial stuff so there's some back and forth rivalry which is great keeps things interesting um but the other couple of things that we kind of figured has driven this huge explosion in the retail market is people are starting to pay more attention to where their meat is coming from mm -hmm. and they want you can't go to a grocery store and get habanero lime snack sticks or you know habanero mango anything you you need to be able to make that yourself to get that type of product and people really want it and we've seen just a, a huge huge explosion in that so for folks that are listening <clears throat> members of pheasants forever quail forever just bird hunters that you know stumbling upon stumbling upon this podcast because they're traveling to their favorite honey hole and, you know, they're getting hyped for the, the day ahead. Give us a rundown of what they find at Walton's Inc., which is your website for retail, what, what they find there. Because we've talked about your tagline, Walton's everything but the meat, right? I mean, is it truly like, are we thinking grinders, stuffers, everything to make sausage, seasoning? Like what's somebody going to find there? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, we have hundreds of different seasonings um, to make sausage, to make jerky, to make breakfast sausage, bratwurst. I mean, you name it, we have the seasoning for it. Then we have all sorts of different additives that can help you make a better product. Things like cold phosphate, encapsulated citric acid, four or five different types of meat binders. And that's just in the seasoning. Then we have every type of casing you could possibly want and <laughs> many that you probably don't even know what they do. Uh, we started, uh, one of the nice things about COVID is we went directly to manufacturers and we now have Walton's grinders, mixers, stuffers, vacuum sealers, and every other little accessory you could think of. We have a Walton's version of it. Hmm. The nice thing about doing that is by going directly to the manufacturer, we were able to tell them, hey, we like this. We don't like this. Please make this change. Keep that the same. And as long as you're willing to pay for it, they're willing to do it. So mm -hmm. a, a small, uh, very small thing we, I don't want to say what it is. We made a change to our grinders that, in my opinion, make them vastly superior to the standard retail grinder we changed well we changed two things but one little thing it was just a half an inch change made all the not all the difference but makes a big difference and mm. i think gives us a superior grinder to most people mm. uh, we've had our own sausage stuffers for 10 ish years um but the grinders the vacuum sealers all of that is COVID. just mm. couldn't get it from our regular supplier we used to have, a, I'm not going to name them, but we used to have a great relationship with the, one of these suppliers. COVID hit. They told us like, hey, it's going to get real hard to get things. Mm -hmm. Totally understood. That's not on them. Then we stopped getting responses from them on our questions. Then mm. random things would show up. Like we'd get uh, pallets of things that we had ordered a year ago and they have no idea we have it. So, mm. you know, we would call them and be like, hey. We haven't been billed for this. You don't know we have it, but, but that's neither here nor there. Um, the real thing that comes out of that is the ability to go directly to the manufacturer allowed us who have a really huge amount of meat processing experience mm -hmm. to customize things to how we thought it would work best. Sure. Our commercial sales department alone has over 80 years if you added them all up the people in there over 80 years 
in this industry. They know the ins and outs of it. Um, and part of the reason, at least we like to think part of the reason that we've grown that retail market is through Meatgistics and through the videos, podcasts, mm -hmm. all that we do. We're trying to give uh, the retail customer who's doing this at home the best shot at making a product as good as what you're going to buy in the store. Mm -hmm. So, so <clears throat> you know, it, it, obviously at the end of a hunt, you're holding meat. So intuitively, there's a connection for a company like Walton's. But in my opinion, you guys have taken it headfirst into the world of conservation and you know, our, at least our world, Upland Hunting, um, your sponsors of the Flush, your national partner of Pheasants Forever, a national partner of Quail Forever. To me, this seems more than, on one hand, there's a marketing strategy behind it, right? There's certainly, there's an ROI that you got to answer to, but it also feels like it's part of the ethos of Walton's to be involved in conservation organizations like Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Let, let's start with the the marketing component of it. Like um, when, when you're thinking about reaching hunters for products like this, you know, is that a big market? What's that represent to a company like Walton's? What was the strategy behind the decision? Well, the first thing that you'd have to understand when you, uh, when you look at why we become a national partner of an organization like Pheasants Forever because we are a small family-owned company. Um, we're not Yukonoba. We're not, you know, Traeger Grills. We yeah. are a family-owned company with less than 100 employees, um, but we're a company made, of, made up of people that mostly grew up hunting, uh, know their way around a bird dog. I mean, Brett, the owners, had uh, German shirt, short hair pointers for as long as I've known them. That or a is the four and a lab. Company's last name. I'm like, is the family Waltons? Yep. Is that the yep. family name? Okay, that's correct. Yeah, just before um, I started working here, and I'm constantly amazed that there was a business before me. I feel like everything that it really started once I got here. Obviously, <laughs> a total joke. Uh, no, but it used to be Midwestern Research and Supply. Huh. Um, Brett bought the business from his father. And then changed it to Walton's, uh, I think, about 15 years ago. Okay. Um, and that all started, Brett's father uh, was a local radio DJ in Wichita. Hmm. And in his spare time, he started sharpening grinder plates and knives. So, like, just for people around the area. They happened to be in a building that right next door was a company called Holly Harnets that sold some meat processing stuff. So, they bought that business, expanded, hmm. and then brought in some salesmen. And they used to, they would go out on routes, visit processors, like walk in, talk to them, place their order. And then they would go load up a truck like the next week and drive that route again and hand deliver hmm. everything. If you could see, like if you hear that story and then you see what our shipping department is like today, it is night and day <laughs> it sounds like chris farley and david spade <laughs> <laughs> yes i imagine that that's what they were like yep and i'm sure they probably tried to time some of their routes to hit some good hunting areas so the, the hunting the conservation part that's always been a big part of who the waltons are hmm. um so when i say you know we're not a traeger we're not uh someone like that size that's usually who you get to be a national sponsor, mm. somebody with those pocketbooks. For mm -hmm. us, it's extremely important, um, both from a marketing standpoint, obviously, but what's going to, you know, what are we going to do? Who are we going to be marketing to if there's no hunting in sure. 15, 20 years? So conservation, incredibly important. And one of the nice things that we like a lot about uh, Pheasants and Quail Forever, obviously you have organization full of great people. Um, everyone I've ever worked with there has been awesome. Uh, we've done some really great media things with you. But I think th the opportunity that pheasant hunting provides for experimentation, hmm. it's a fairly easy thing to go out, hunt, 
harvest and make something edible out of it. Mm-hmm. You shoot a deer. Oh, you've got a lot of hard work ahead of you. You're mm-hmm. not even half done. Uh, you shoot a pheasant. We could be on the table in a, you know, we could be on the table that day if it's farm raised, but generally in a couple of days you're eating it. Mm-hmm. So it makes it really a good target customer for us. That's cool. That's cool. Well, you know, first and foremost, thank you very much. You know, whether it's um, big companies or mom and pops, having that financial commitment to the organization allows us to do the habitat work and the public access and introduce the next generation. So they do keep hunting and harvesting and eating wild game. So it's incredibly important for us to have partners like Walton's. Um, so, so sincerely, thank you. Um, we're going to break this podcast conversation up into three components. We're going to talk a little bit about cleanliness, keeping that bird clean, um, and what that means, I guess, um, in terms of out of your dog's mouth and, and uh, <laughs> temperature. We're going to talk about aging a bird, um, how to do that properly, and then also packaging the bird, because one of the, my absolute pet peeves, and I know our listeners have heard me say this before. Nothing drives me crazy like a bird that dies two deaths, one of them at the bottom of a freezer. Um, that's just not uh, respectful to the entire habitat, um, bird, everything that we've all put into this. So we're going to break it up into three parts. Um, before we jump into the meat, yeah, I did that on purpose, the <laughs> meat of the conversation, uh, shout out to our uh, other national partner uh, at South Dakota Department of Tourism and South Dakota Game, Fish, and Parks. Win South Dakota's Hunt the Greatest giveaway, and you too can get an epic pheasant hunt and free shields gear. Enter for a chance to win at huntthegreatest.com. All right, so as we dive into cleanliness... Um, so first of all, anything to worry about when that bird's, uh, in the dog's mouth. And I'm assuming I've seen my dog eat some things that I don't want in my mouth. <laughs> Most yeah. recently, uh, thing that comes to mind is my, my young pup got into some bear bait that made her sick for about two days. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, and everybody's seen their dog eat things, uh, that, you know, not the greatest. So I'm assuming there's some bacteria issues you got to worry about. Um, just whether it's the dog's mouth or where that bird lands or just, you know, the natural reality of bacteria is everywhere. Um, what do we got to worry about in terms of keeping that meat safe from the moment it um, it comes, comes back to your hand? Sure. So uh, before we get into that real quick, what kind of dog you got? I need I, to know this. I, I have uh, German short hairs. I've got I three saw, of okay. them. Yep. I started, I looked at you on Instagram. I saw a bunch of GSPs. Just wanted to make sure that one was yours. <laughs> yep. um, I do not have a hunting dog. I've got a, a rescue pit bull that's like a hundred pounds. And then we thought big dogs are fun. So we got a 180 pound uh, <laughs> African Mastiff and he is, it's a constant fight. Uh, unbel- they're great dogs, but yeah, hunting, uh-uh. neither one of them would ever bring a bird back mm. they'd get it but mm. they'd go somewhere and eat it right uh, but but for bacteria uh the number one thing i always recommend for any wild game hunter and this goes from deer elk bear uh to upland is a product called deer and wild game rinse it mm. is extremely inexpensive a small amount of it mixes up an entire gallon of this spray uh it is uh filled with um a citric acid It's got uh, a sorbate in it. So all sorts of things that are going to fight off mold and kill all sorts of bacteria. So if you do that, you can leave it in your truck. You don't need to bring it with you. But when you get your kill back to your truck, spray the entry and exit wounds really liberally, just like really spray it on there. It's not going to impart any taste. It's not going to create any difficulties, but it is going to help control the growth of anything that we're going to need to fight later on. So Mm. that is the number one tip. It absolutely can help out. Now, when we're talking about any type of wild game, probably, or any type of meat, but more so with wild game, we're fighting pathogens, all sorts of things that can not only spoil our meat, but can harm people who are eating it. 
Hmm. Um, one of the things I always say here is I'm basically paranoid about feeding somebody something here that's going to make them sick. I don't see that as a negative. I see that as a positive. Uh, that paranoia keeps me honest, keeps me sharp, making sure I'm checking all the boxes. Uh, with Specifically with pheasant, there's something called, and I had to write this down, um, it is uh, Mycoplasms gallispecticum. Um, now, luckily, that lives in pheasant, and it doesn't cross over to humans. So the only reason I even bring it up is pheasants that are infected with that are, I think, five times more likely to be carriers of E. coli. Mm. Uh, the best way to, other than actually bringing your bird somewhere and getting it tested and who is doing that, yeah. uh, the best way to check um, is if the air sacs and the material surrounding it isn't clear or if it appears bubbly, hmm. uh, then it likely has that infection. Hmm. That doesn't mean we have to throw that meat out. Definitely not. It just means we need to be more careful with it as we go. Um, their E. coli divide every 20 minutes. Um, there's, uh, there's more to that. Uh, once it divides, there's an additional 20 ish minutes that it takes to like actually be a replicate. But for the purposes of ease every 20 minutes, they divide. So they're duplicating every 20 minutes. That means a single E. coli under optimal conditions is over a million in 22 hours hmm. somewhere right around that one becomes two becomes four becomes 16 becomes and it just exponential growth so spraying your bird with something like deer and wild game rinse really really can help you fight that and i mean cooking poultry or any type of poultry to 165 is going to basically make it safe to eat mm -hmm. but you can't cook spoilage out of a any type of meat. Hmm. That was something that I was shocked that most people didn't know. Um, on Meatgistics, we had somebody saying, hey, these steaks have been out for, you know, I think like eight hours at room temperature. I said, but if I cook them up to temp, I should be fine, right? I'm like, well, yeah, it's probably not going to make anyone sick, but it's going to taste absolutely terrible. Hmm. And then there is also uh, botulism when it creates a, a spore. So botulism as it's as itself can be killed by cooking up to 145. But if it has had time to create a spore, those are heat resistant well beyond any temperature you're going to be cooking to. Um, so, you know, I'm thinking about the, the pheasant hunter, quail hunters, like, boy, this, this has gone sort of aggressive really quickly, right? Because I've, you know, I, I've shot a bird and it's sat in the backseat of the truck after I get back and I go hunt three more fields and I don't sure. clean it till the end of the day. And I've never had gut rot or any issues, you know? Yep. So how, how do you, um, how do you know when you're in danger? What, I mean, is it purely about temperature, like on a hot day that things are going to be more dangerous for you? Oh, absolutely. Um, in, in the entire meat processing uh, process, though that sounds terrible, um, heat is the enemy. Okay. As soon as we kill that animal, anything that's raising the temperature or keeping it high is absolutely going to hurt our finished product, obviously, until we get to the cooking phase. Now, what you said, throw it in the back seat and you're letting it sit there, you know, you're out pheasant hunting, it's probably cool out anyways. Uh, we'll talk about aging, one of the things we'll sure. talk about yep. later. So that does factor into it. Uh, the one huge problem there is gut shot. Mm. If you've spilled that intestine material into the rest of the meat, don't hang it, don't let it sit in the back of your truck, get it cleaned as quickly as possible. Um, I'll save some of that for our the portion of aging conversation as well. Um, but salmonella, salmonella is also another big mm. concern when we're talking about poultry. Um, luckily, in pheasant, it's not as big a deal. Uh, I think the last study was 7% of wild pheasant were found to contain sal salmonella, which is pretty low. Mm -hmm. um, the issue is 
when you hear about all these salmonella cases from, you know, even uh, chicken you buy at the store, mm -hmm. it's usually not the chicken that they've cooked and eaten that's causing it. It's something called cross-contamination. Hmm. And cross-contamination, whether it's uh, wild game, store-bought beef, store-bought chicken, is something people need to be keeping in mind. If you've cut up your pheasant on a board and you take that out to your grill mm. and then you put that pheasant back on that board, why did you cook it? Right. Basically, right. I mean, you've reintroduced all of the things we were trying to kill. So the two things I would always recommend is clean any cutting surfaces you're using as soon as you're done uh, with that surface. And two, uh, sanitize. Mm. Uh, we sell a product called hard right there. Maxim uh, hard surface sanitizer. You spray it on uh, 60 seconds later, everything's sanitized. It's a simple way to do it and really does probably saves a lot of uh, uncomfortable couple of days with food poisoning. Sure. So I'm assuming same, you know, cleaning that cutting board, same is true at game shears or knives. You know, if you keep it in your truck, make sure it gets <laughs> right. Make sure it gets, yeah. gets to the kitchen to get, a uh, little dishwasher soap on it before it gets back into the truck to clean the next bird. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and it, when we're talking about that, one of the other things that always comes up, uh, because when we do pheasant, obviously we do plenty of pheasant breast, pheasant you know, chunks like mm -hmm. that. But we've also done a lot of ground pheasant products. Pheasant snack sticks are incredible. Mm. If you can get your hands on just some uh, pork fat, mix 25% of that in with your pheasant and you will have delicious tasting snack sticks. People don't do it enough, but uh, <laughs> I've even tried quail snack sticks, mm -hmm. but after, you know, taking the meat off of my eighth quail and I had just, you know, well under a pound, I'm like, all right, I'm done. Like, there needs to be some payoff for this. But uh, so with anytime we're talking about cooking uh, pheasant, Mm -hmm. We want to be at 165 degrees. That's yeah. where the, the moment of instant lethality is. That is, as soon as you hit 165, everything we're concerned about is dead. And I assume that's true of quail too, right? I mean, Correct. It, yeah. Correct. Okay. Yep. Um, the question that always comes up, though, is uh, when we're talking about uh, a beef or a pork, mm. they want to know why they can cook a steak medium rare, but they have to cook, you know, their pork sausage up to 160. Mm -hmm. It's because almost all of the bacteria lives on the outside of the muscle. Very little of it lives inside. So as soon as we've ground that, we've taken that bacteria that lived just on the outside and we've mixed it sure. all in throughout the meat. So to make sure we're killing it, we just cook it all the way up to 160 for beef, pork, larger animals, 165 for any type of poultry. So, okay, let's basic like cliff notes if if it's a gut shot mm -hmm. then almost probably as immediate as you get to the hand you want to get the guts out of that bird be, even before you put it in your best your vest for those bacteria to magnify into the meat or um, multiply into the meat if if you can be patient enough to take the time and gut out that bird that's the best case scenario Sure. Yep. Then obviously you have to fight your dogs for mm -hmm. whatever you've just got to do. Right. They're coming for right, it. Right, right. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, another thing to keep in mind is with a, a gut shot that's significant, you might want to consider not putting that in the vest with other birds. Mm. Um, that's probably being overly careful, yeah. uh, but it's usually better to be uh, overly careful. Um, another thing is... Um, Bags are, are great as long as it's cool out. Mm -hmm. When it's warmer out, a strap is going to be better. It's going to prevent them from trapping more heat. Okay. If there's wind, it's going to allow it to cool all of that off. I always thought that that was about like being uh, boastful. It's like, hey, <laughs> hey, you know, I got <laughs> these. Yeah, I got these two birds hanging off my my hip. Look at how, how great a shot I am. Now that makes a little bit more sense. That air is your friend. Um, sure. So bird that's not gut shot and let's say it is warm out. Um, I'm guessing it's to your advantage to get that bird on ice in a cooler back in your truck if, if possible. Yep. Um, what's 
is there a magic temperature to be worried about? There's really not. Um, the danger zone is 40 to 140 degrees. That's what we always talk mm. about. Um, that is more aimed at the cooking process. Um, but generally, you don't want any meat that you're planning on consuming to spend an hour anywhere in between those ranges. Mm. So from 40 to 140 degrees. Now, the nice thing about a pheasant, it is a fairly small animal with fairly small breasts. It's going to cool very rapidly. Mm. We're not as worried about it. Uh, you're not going to have to pack the cavity with ice, nothing like that. Um, but it is definitely something to, to think about. Okay. Uh, do I want to go hit this next field before I get this back somewhere cool? Hey, if it's 30 degrees out, go ahead. Mm -hmm. You're fine. But if it's if we're on one of those rare 60 degree days, right? Eh, maybe make a trip back to the truck. Okay. And have a cooler with some ice. Just yep. protect that bird a little bit more. Yep. Because there's uh, one of the greatest feelings, to me at least, is serving somebody something that I took all, our uh, Meatistics logo is from animal to edible, something that I harvested, something that I cleaned, something that yeah. I prepared, cooked, and seeing them enjoy it, that is a, a, an amazing feeling. Right. And when it's your family, even better. Right. right. And you want it to be completely clean and safe oh. and taste great, right? So, yes. So oh. take the a little bit of extra time and just have some preparedness. So, all right, let's, let's move the conversation to aging. I'm going to take a pause here and welcome a new partner in the On the Wing podcast and a national sponsor of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, OnX. The OnX Hunt app is the number one GPS hunting map for bird hunters. And with the most trusted and accurate data, you'll be able to find more birds across the country. Download the app for a risk-free seven-day trial and use the code PHEASANTS during checkout for 20% off at onxhunt.com. I'm assuming there's a fine line <laughs> between aging a bird and letting in that bacteria um, that becomes a negative. So here's the boring answer. There really isn't necessarily a right or wrong way to do it. Mm. Um, it also does depend on, is this a farm raised bird or is this a wild bird? Mm. If it's a farm raised bird, well, let me back up here. Uh, when we're hanging, we're relying on enzymes that are already present within the animal to break down that muscle and make it tender. There's a reason that we hang beef, deer, elk, like the large animals that we hunt. And we don't really hang pork. Mm -hmm. Well, that's because pork is usually harvested at a very young age when those animals or when those muscles are naturally tender. Mm. With the larger animals, we're letting them grow bigger because we want more meat. Well, then the trade-off to that is then we have to hang or it's going to be a, a very a tough chew, a tough bite. Um, so hanging allows that to just naturally tenderize. Um, around 50 degrees is about the temperature you want to hang at. Now, I know that sounds kind of different than what we just talked mm -hmm. about, but that was specifically with a gut shot animal. Right. So a with, gut shot animal, you're not hanging at all, I'm assuming, right? Like it, no. you don't even consider hanging a gut shot animal. And one other clarification, when you're hanging, the head is on top when you're hanging. So the guts rest down. If yeah, think about that's that how, correctly. That's how I would do it. Yep. Okay. That, that's how we do it. Um, I know there was a, I don't want to mention them either. Uh, there was a, a hunting lodge we went to that, uh, you know, full service. So they were doing everything, uh, happened to walk by the processing room and I was like, Ooh, mm. I'm, I'm not eating any of that. Mm. Like, that's, that's going to somebody else. Uh, just cause you look in quickly and you see just not a clean mm. environment. So that's kind of neither here so, nor what there. What other clarify, um, hanging, Guts are removed when you're hanging a bird? 
Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Got it. For sure. Yep. Um, so with, depending on the age of the bird, which is hard to determine, mm -hmm. uh, we're looking for somewhere around three to seven days for a somewhat older wild bird. That seven days seems to be the magic number. Beyond that, not so good. Mm -hmm. You can kind of tell the age of a bird by size. It's not always perfect and coloring, things like that, but it's not ever going to be exact. So you kind of have to play with it mm -hmm. and figure out. So three to seven days for a wild. Um, for a farm, if you know they just went out and planted all the birds, you can hang it for 24 hours and you're going to have just as good results as if you had uh you know perfect hanging experience on a wild bird. so a game farm bird is going to be a, a year or less they're just going to be younger so they don't have to hang as long exactly got it yep. okay yep. so in terms of what do you gain by hanging a pheasant now i know you talk about tenderness yep. um generally in my opinion, like the only pheasants relatively tender unless you overcook it. So like how much of a value and it does it affect the flavor? Do you get a richer flavor or different flavor by hanging? So the only pheasant I've eaten that has not been hung is uh, farm raised. Mm. Uh, I believe they're a sponsor of your guys, uh, McFarland yeah, Pheasants. Yep. Farm, so I I order a pheasant from them uh, when I need something for like the game bird gourmet segment we do with you guys. Um, as far as a, a, a flavor difference, I personally don't notice it. Mm -hmm. um, now I'm also doing these mostly for videos where I'm adding you know a significant amount of seasoning. Mm -hmm. So tenderness tends to be more of a, a concern okay. for me than that. Okay. Part. Um, I'm going to take a, one more moment and thank another, another partner real quick and encourage everybody listening um, to take the Hunter Mentor Pledge sponsored by Alps Outdoors. Um, our lifestyle as hunters, as outdoors people, is um, a, th a threat because we're losing hunters. So it's critically important for all of us to take somebody new to the field particularly somebody that doesn't look like you. Um, take the Hunter Mentor Pledge at pheasantsforever.org slash mentor pledge or quailforever.org slash mentor pledge. And thanks to Alps Outdoors for uh, bringing this important uh, message to keeping helping save our lifestyle to the masses. And uh, if, if we can bring more people to the outdoors and that allows us to continue to do our habitat mission. So thanks, Helps Outdoors. Um, all right, Jonathan, let's let's transition a little bit to uh, packaging. As I mentioned, one of my absolute pet peeves uh, is birds that you know are, is, people spend a ton of time working on habitat, public access, dog training, shooting quality. You know, and they, they spend thousands of dollars going on trips, right? Buying licenses, spending time in lodges. They bring the meat back and then it sits at the bottom of a freezer in, you know, less than ideal situation and it, it gets freezer burned. And, you know, I'm personally, it's my goal before September 1st every single year to turn my freezer over. I want, I want before I get to the new hunting season, I'm, I've eaten everything from the year before, go. right? And, which I think maybe doesn't eliminate every freezer burn opportunity, but it sure limits a lot. Um, but there are things you can take, uh, some precautions you can take to ensure freezer burn doesn't happen, or at least doesn't happen very quickly. Um, it, talk to us about that, uh, some recommendations for, for packaging your pheasants and your quail and your sharp tails to prevent... Yep prevent that second death at the bottom of a freezer. So the number one thing is the best way to package any wild game, definitely pheasant and other upland game is a vacuum sealer. Mm -hmm. I see people still using uh, butcher paper and some sort of plastic wrap on the outside. And don't get me wrong, you can get extremely good with that. Uh, they, the, in the meat packing industry before 
vacuum sealers became prevalent, they had people who had been doing that for years and would get every little bit of air out of it. Mm. Then vacuum sealers came along and they're doing a better job with no experience whatsoever. <laughs> so it absolutely is the best way to do it. Um, it helps prevent freezer burn, not all the time, um, but in general, it does help. Uh, <laughs> but by removing all of the air, we're removing most of the issues for spoilage. Mm -hmm. um, out of curiosity, what's the oldest piece of meat you've ever eaten? Oh boy, I've got a you know three four years old. Okay. You know, okay. not recently, but I know that I've done it. I've yeah. taken, you know, there are friends that clean out their freezer and they know, quote unquote, Bob will take that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've yep. gotten some elk and some moose that that's multi years old. Sure, six is my. Uh, mm longest then it was the same thing it was not mine it was like hey i'm gonna throw this out I'm like well i will eat it yeah it's a shame to let that be thrown out the most i've ever heard about uh was seven years mm. so i'm right at that age always looking for someone to get me past that <laughs> magic number but, um so but what you mentioned freezer burned huge problem uh so what's happening there is moisture from inside the muscle is being drawn to the surface then refreezing and creating those ice crystals. Mm. I mean, we all know when water freezes, it expands. So it's expanding and it's blowing up that cell structure. So not only is it making the cooking process more difficult, but it is damaging mm. the outside of the meat. So I, freezer burn, while it's unappealing, doesn't necessarily, I mean, if, if it comes down to it, I'll eat freezer burn things without really much of a problem, but it's not a pleasant experience. Mm -hmm. uh, so vacuum sealing and then keeping your freezer at a steady temperature. Mm. The number one thing that's going to cause freezer burn on a vacuum packed product is temperature fluctuation. Mm. Uh, we have a large lay down freezer in here that makes a significant amount of noise. So we need to turn it off when we're recording podcasts or you can hear the hum in the back. Um, I, there was, I got home one night and Patrick who does all of our video editing He's like, uh, hey, I don't think we turned that freezer back oh, on. Boy. So I drove right back down here and turned <clears throat> it on. Otherwise, I mean, it's not going to spoil overnight. It's not going to spoil over a weekend. It'll be fine in there. But I am going to start getting freezer burn mm -hmm. on it. And I'm trying desperately to, to avoid that. Um, so when we're talking about chambered machines, there really is two different styles. There's what we call a chamber machine. That's where your product goes inside. Well, yeah, your product's inside the bag. And the entire bag goes inside of the vacuum machine into that chamber. What happens is it then pumps out all the air from that chamber, seals your bag and reintroduces the pressure. So then all the air is out of the bag. Your back vacuum seal is as near as perfect as it's going to get. Uh, you will have the best results with that without a problem hmm. or without a doubt. The downside to that is twofold. One, there are more expensive mm -hmm. There's just no question. Um, our chambered vacuum sealer is, I think, almost three times the price of our most expensive chamberless vacuum sealer. The other issue, which really is not an issue, it's a benefit, people just don't realize it, is it does take a little bit longer to get through a cycle. Um, it's doing that because it is getting all of the possible air out mm. of that. It's getting down to... They use uh, inches of mercury hmm. as a uh, measurement a measurement for that. Thank you. And that does stem back from the times when they actually would have a tube that they would measure how far the mercury went up hmm. the tube for how much uh, or, uh, for what they have on getting all the air out of there. Gotcha. Um, with a chamberless machine and this is where we put just the opening of the bag people often call them like food savers yeah that's what i got uh, yep so inside of that even though we call it chamberless there is a little chamber in there and it's sucking all the air out of there and then it pulls the air out of the bag yeah so if you if you notice um a vacuum bag that you're going to use in a chambered machine is completely smooth on all sides mm. one that you're going to use a chamberless machine has a texture to it mm. It needs that texture. Uh, if you tried to use a completely smooth bag, what would happen would be right outside uh, the lid for that, it would close 
that bag, suck it to itself so hard that none of the air on the other side of that would be able to make it past. Mm. So that texture allows a channel for the air to kind of run up and move throughout. And you can see that if you have a, a product that has some moisture to it, you can watch it get pulled yep. up. So, so that brings uh, me I, to a question of that, that moisture piece, not to cut mm -hmm. you off, but it's like, I, I always pre-freeze. So, and then put Great it process. Oh, okay. So I was wondering if I was doing it right. Cause, cause otherwise when you put it into like the end of that bag into the channel and the liquid dumps out, it doesn't seem to um, create this adhesive that's as um, secure as if I pre-freeze, kind of freeze that water, whatever liquid's in there, and then put it in the channel, I get a much better um, adhesiveness to the bag. Yep. Now, you don't even need to, to completely pre-freeze. You can get it just to where, you know, you have the outside is nice and tacky mm -hmm. uh, and has some resistance when you're pressing on it that will do a good enough job of keeping most of the moisture in there, mm -hmm. not allowing it to escape up into the chamber because obviously there's electronics in there and electronics and water generally don't go great together. Right. Um, one of the things you can do is if you do not have time uh, to pre-freeze, you can just take a small or a, a appropriately sized piece of paper towel, put it in that little mini chamber and it will catch liquid that comes up through there and prevent it from getting deeper into the machine. Huh. Now, the other thing you're going to fight is exactly what you were talking about, where you don't get as good a seal because yep. there's water in between. Now, with some of the chamberless machines, you can adjust the seal time. So generally, you can get around that by just upping your seal time. Hmm. If you've done that and you see a seal that you're not 100% confident in, but you still have a good... Uh, vacuum in there there's no air i always dry out the portion on the other side of the seal so towards the opening of the bag and just seal it again mm. just run another seal on it it'll work wonders so for a hunter and let's talk about bird hunter uh well no somebody that deer hunts elk hunts bird hunts the whole deal and they have the chamberless vacuum sealer but they're considering that chambered vacuum sealer that's three times the price. Yep. Why would a person spend the three times the price to go to chambered? Is it they're going to – what's the value proposition why they would go to the next level? That's a great question, um, and it's – honestly, it, it's fairly easy to answer. Outside of the fact that uh, part of the chamberless bag having that texture makes it – a little stiffer mm. so it can't form around your meat as tightly mm -hmm. as a chamberless bag so you're just by nature of the bag you're gonna have more air in a chamberless bag more air is exactly what we're trying to avoid so you get a better seal with the smooth bag mm. the other thing is because the smooth bags don't need to have that chamber or that texture mm -hmm. built into them they're far less expensive to produce Therefore, they're far less expensive when we sell them to you. Mm. Right before uh, we got going here, I was thinking I should break that down. And if we're looking at 8 by 12 bags, a 1,000 of them for the chambered, mm -hmm. where you put the whole bag Smooth. in there, yep, is going to cost you $0.05 cents a bag. Mm. A 1,000 of them for the chamberless with the texture is going to be $0.24 cents a bag. Mm. So five times as expensive. So depending on how often you vacuum seal, you can make that money up fairly rapid. So I'm relatively spoiled here. I have every piece of commercial retail, anything you could want to play with. Um, but in my opinion, a chambered machine hmm. makes more sense long term. They also hmm. do have a tendency to last a lot longer uh, than the chamber list machines. That is probably mostly from not sucking liquid up into the internals. Gotcha. And I, I, I've thought about this like four different times as we've been talking about vacuum sealer. Back in the day as a kid, when we'd shoot a grouse or even fish, we would put them in Ziploc bags in bag full of water. 
right? And then freeze it and yep. it'd be this great big block in it. I think it, you know, it, it was relatively effective, I think, at preventing freezer burn. But I mean, like, think about how much space. Yes, right? huge <laughs> right? amount of space. These huge blocks of ice oh, for yep. one bird. You know, you'd get like 15 birds in your chest freezer. And, be like, what? and then you defrosting that. Yeah. You're right. taking forever. <laughs> yep. But uh, it, if the choice was between that and just putting it in a regular Ziploc mm. and throwing it in the freezer, what's going to give you a better product? Freezing it in ice. Yeah. I mean, it, it really will. <laughs> Even though that sounds a little counterintuitive because you're thinking, well, you, we said earlier that, you know, the water expands and destroys the the cell structure of the mm -hmm. outside of the meat, mm -hmm. but it's freezing all around it. It's right. giving it room to expand this way too. doesn't right. all go internal. When that water gets drawn from the interior of the muscle to the exterior, and then it expands, it's still in the cell. So it's going to explode that cell. The mm. way you're doing it, it's not anywhere near <laughs> as harmful to it, but that's a pretty good idea. Well, the way I used to do it, I'm, yes. I'm right there. You've <laughs> advanced. The I've advanced. I've advanced. I, I have the vacuum sealer and that, that does make a world of difference. Yep. If, if listeners um, don't have a vacuum sealer, my goodness, it is, you know, whether you got a garden or you're a hunter, um, just uh, the ease with which uh, a vacuum sealer makes your life at preserving things for a, a longer period of time is, is really, really worth the investment. Um, yep. All right. So a final section of our conversation, I want to talk about seasonings. Sure. And we have two seasonings in particular. We partnered with Walton's Around, um, Bold Barbecued Quail yep. and Roasted Ringneck. I yep. love the name of that one. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, each of those seasonings and like the flavor profile and how somebody would prepare um, a quail or a pheasant using those seasonings. Sure. Uh, so the bold barbecue quail, uh, which was, I came up with that. So I like it even more, um, <laughs> has a, a nice sweetness and a mm -hmm. little bit of smokiness to it already. Um, so really, really good on the grill or in a pan, uh, mm. quail. I don't actually like smoking as much. Uh, I'm more of a fan of just doing it on the grill. Mm -hmm. Um, I also, am a large proponent of spatchcocking uh, mm. a quail and then just hit it with that. I, I'm a little bit more on the, the lighter side of seasoning than uh, Austin, who I do the podcast with. That guy overseasons things like he, <laughs> he cannot, you can't put too much salt on a product for him. He's insane. Mm. Um, but I like a decent amount of seasoning, just a, mm -hmm. a, a dusting. Um but yeah, the flavor profile on that really does lend itself really well to being just grilled. Works well with it. Uh, the ring neck has an awesome butter and garlic flavor to it by itself. Mm. So that anything you want to do, I, I mean, I know it is directed at pheasants, but it's so good on pork. It's mm. so good on anything. Um, for pheasants specifically, pan fried with that is absolutely out of this world yeah really really good and it's not um not wild game but your burger seasoning is straight up the real deal so if for listeners go to waltonsinc.com type in quail forever pheasants forever and the the pheasant and quail packages will, will come up uh but add the burger seasoning to the cart too so it's the uh i don't know if you're because we've we have the better burger seasoning, but then we have That's the, the okay. So if you've tried that, try the ultimate steak and roast rub. Um, so for people who go to the website and see the bold barbecue quail and the ring neck, they'll see it. It can come in a three pack, and that middle one is the ultimate steak and roast rub. I will cook a reverse seared steak with that, and I will put it up against any steakhouse that wants to come try me because <laughs> that is the only thing I put on steaks anymore. Huh. We occasionally have something. Uh, we started carrying a new spice company, so we tried some of their seasoning, and it is very good, but mm. it is a different flavor profile. That Walton's Ultimate Steak and Roast Rub is 100% what I'm looking for, like from here on out it's awesome all right so and i see it right there the shaker yep. gift pack um i've always bought the the quail 
in the roasted uh, roasted ringneck separately. Um, but I'll buy the three pack next. Yeah, and- absolutely do that. It's worth it. Um, and just one quick other thing: what you were saying, your pet peeve is is also very much mine, and I think a lot of our people in here and Meatjustics members mm. uh, pet peeve. If you're gonna go kill something, eat it. It's mm-hmm. part of the process. And I think part of the reason you said people spend thousands of dollars, all of this energy, effort mm-hmm. into going out and harvesting these animals and then don't eat them. And not only is that a shame, but it's a it's a missed opportunity. Touched on it real quickly earlier, but the feeling of pride you get serving somebody mm-hmm. a meal, things that you made is unparalleled, at least as far as I'm concerned. And I think it's an education problem. I think Mm. it's people have a tendency to overcook pheasant. So like, no, it's dry. I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't like it. If they just would take the time, check out some of the game bird gourmet stuff that we've done together and the ones that you guys have done. Um, We have a couple of new segments coming out, the path to the uplands, bird in the bags. They just need to be taught that there absolutely is a way to prepare pheasant and make it taste and quail and make them taste absolutely delicious. I think that will take a huge chunk out of that second death stuff. <laughs> yeah, right on. And that's a great call out too, because we did some awesome videos uh, here recently with John Whipley yep. um, for twin cities. Folks know the name John Whipley because of his uber popular Anamala's barbecue food truck. Um, it, I mean, everybody from Andrew Zimmern, to, you name it, uh, eats at, at John Whipley's barbecue truck. So, what an awesome name! Yeah, isn't it? It's so good. <laughs> Have so you eaten good. at his? I know you're in Wichita. Did you eat at the food truck? Nope, nope. So I got a chance uh, come up and we filmed some things with him. Didn't have time to get down there and do that. But I'll tell you, we did four recipes together. I learned more about cooking in that like nine hours than I probably ever have like in any other short amount of time in my life. That guy knows his stuff. He's, I think he's classically French. Yep. Uh, trained. Trained. Yeah. And doing barbecue. I mean, that's not two things that you would normally, <laughs> right? but you hear him explain it. You're like, oh yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah. I get yeah. it. I get it. Yeah, he's, he's a terrific guy and a super supporter of, of conservation organizations, including, including ours. Um, and he has solved the riddle of uh, candied jalapenos too. So if, if you go to uh, oh, Anamala's wow. food truck, make sure you get a side of candied jalapenos with whatever barbecue. And it's just the perfect side dish too. It's, it's just awesome, awesome food. Awesome. Hopefully I'll be back up that way in the next little bit. And I will definitely check that out. Yeah. Jonathan, thank you so much for, for being a part of this podcast. I really, really enjoyed talking with you. Everything from, you know, kind of the, the marketing and in the niche that you guys occupy, but then really specifically about how to, you know, take care of our um, bird meat that we put so much effort into. It's been really fun. Awesome. I appreciate you having me on. Um, can't wait for this to come out. I'm sure the, if nothing else, uh, all our Meatistics guys will find a new podcast that they can enjoy. <laughs> and if folks, you know, this will come out uh, as we head into the holiday season and, you know, maybe give folks a, a thought on what they want to check out at waltonsinc.com. Sure. So if this is coming out in the first or second week ish, um, we have our uh, 13 days of Christmas sale. Um, starts uh, the 12th this year, I believe. Might be just a little bit earlier than that. Uh, we do escalating sales. So 13 days, something new goes on sale each day and then it's on sale to the end. So mm. something comes on day one, it's all the way. Um, and then we finish that off with, uh, a, we usually do a five-hour live stream where it's Austin and I sitting up here putting things on flash sale, mm. throwing out some like extra large coupons. This year, Austin won't be here. Uh, he's got a, another child on the way, so he'll be dealing with that. Uh, but I will have Brett, the owner of Walton's, who people love. When we have him on a podcast or we have him on a live stream, the response is ridiculous. He's a, a really great guy. Really Super great fun. guy. Yeah. Well, when when listeners are taking advantage of some of those deals, I encourage you four things. Well, maybe let's say two things. Buy the PF and QF Walton seasoning set. Just get the three pack. 
and get a vacuum sealer if you don't have one. Please, we don't want those birds to die a second death. Whatever vacuum sealer you get. Um, hell, take a photo, send it to me on Instagram, and <laughs> I'd be thrilled to see everybody as uh, frozen birds and knowing that they're they're going to hit the plate in, in good shape. Yep. Jonathan, thank you so much for being a, a national sponsor of the organization and for, for your um, Walton's commitment to our conservation mission. Absolutely. Bob, thanks for having us. You guys are doing great work. All right, folks. Um, for Jonathan Tremblay, I am Bob St. Pierre uh, reminding you to always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks for listening.